Well, good morning, and uh, happy Mother's Day again. If you're visiting us this morning, I'm glad you're here. My name's Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 19. As you turn there, um, I'm not 100% myself, and I just want to feel more comfortable about getting that out there. Uh, so I've uh, kind of been battling some strange something. And if you happen to notice that, that's all that that is. It's not a lack of interest or I'd rather be somewhere else than here with you. It's just the nature of my health at this point. Um, But we'll be in chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. As we look again to Luke, we'll be looking at Luke uh, actually one more time before we close this series. Remind us of what we've been asking this whole series, which is what would compel anybody to follow Jesus and uh, what would cause them to want to drop what they have, and so to speak, um, and, and take up a life of following Christ. And so here we, we come to a section in Luke that many commentators, as we get past this, as we get into the section and up to the cross, Luke kind of changes a little bit and he just wants us to look at Jesus. And to uh, more or less observe him. And I think that's something we should do this morning. So I I commend that to you as we read this. Chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for uh, this morning. And we give you thanks for your word that is truth to us and for us. We pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we cannot. Um, That your grace would rain down upon us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. What do you do with those who reject you? I don't know how much experience you have with rejection, but what do you do with those people or those entities that say no to you? That rejects you. Maybe um, you can think of a boyfriend or a girlfriend who uh, did not say yes when you asked them out or to prom. And 35, 40 years later, you might still be holding on to that. That's okay. Um, what do you do if the college you tried to get in that you really wanted to go to didn't accept you? Um, but they sent you a letter saying thanks, but 
We are uh, looking at other people. Um, or what about a job? Maybe a job that you wanted and um, you thought you had nailed the interview. All to find out that they are going with somebody else. What do you do with these situations, with folks, entities, whatever it might be, that, that reject you? And most of the time, when we face rejection, right, we, along with our, our closest friends, we kind of huddle together. And, uh, you know, we kind of kind of say, you know, who really needs them? Right? Who really needs those, those people? If it's not this person, it's somebody better, right? It's not this job, it's going to be a better job. Some of the things we might say, we, we might offer uh, subtle slanders right, to them, mild slanders, and we might downplay our interests. Uh, you know, they weren't my first choice anyways, right? Um, some, some way to sort of push against uh, the rejection that we're feeling. The last thing that we are thinking about doing, which is what Jesus actually is going to do in the face of those who reject them, the last thing we think about doing is actually laying our life down for them. Um, and that is what we see and what we will see Jesus doing uh, here in this text as he uh, comes in on the week of Passover. This is the last time as he comes into the city of Jerusalem before he will die. And he looks over the city, as we just read, and he weeps for it. And the reason he weeps for it is because those who uh, have rejected him, the, uh, those who uh, did not know the time of their visitation, which is now upon them as Jesus looks over the one who makes for peace, right? he weeps at the rejection of them. But that doesn't keep him from dying for them, as we'll see. At the same time, what we'll also see is that in his dying for them, he creates and he clears a path for all to come and be with him. That's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, if you're taking notes, I want us to look at three things. Why Jesus weeps, why Jesus is angry, and then what Jesus is looking for. So why Jesus weeps, why Jesus is angry, and what Jesus is looking for. So let's look at that first one, why Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps, as we said, because Jerusalem, the city of peace, that's what Jerusalem literally means, has rejected what makes for peace. That is, they have rejected Jesus, the true king, to understand why Jesus weeps, we have to understand this term visitation here in verse 44. It also means investigation uh, or inspection. Uh, the act of God looking into and searching out the ways and deeds and character of men in order to judge them, their lot accordingly. And as Jesus approaches the city and he looks over it, the day of visitation, the day of inspection has arrived. God's answer for what makes for peace, the Messiah has come. And what has Jesus found as he looks over this city of peace? He's found the city of peace, Jerusalem, not knowing what makes for true peace, as ironic as that might sound. He has found the priests not wanting to worship God, but actually, as we read, wanting to kill him. He's found the heart of Israel infested with idolatry the worship of other things. In other words, he has found rejection. And it causes Jesus to weep because judgment is now imminent. There's no going back. Now, I don't know about you, but this is where things get difficult for me as I've been reading this and studying this. How can God look upon a city that has rejected him and weep over that city 
and not just do something about it? That's my first question. Right? Change their hearts. Right? Fix, the, fix it. Do something. Why are you weeping? It's kind of what comes to mind. I don't know if this is what you're thinking, but, but then I'm forced to remember why this visitation or this investigation is even upon Jerusalem in the first place. And to do this, we have to recall and remember what it means to be in a covenantal relationship with God. That there are blessings and curses that come with covenantal relationship as we have studied before. That come with being in relationship with him. And to break or disobey this covenant, right? It didn't just mean that you wouldn't get the blessings of that covenant. It meant that you were sure to get the curses as well, right? This is the whole bit about splitting the animals and and the two parties walking between those animals saying that if I break these vows, may my life be like these animals as well. May death and judgment come upon me. These are the terms of the covenant. And as Jesus approaches the city, he looks over it and he sees the city as a whole that has not lived up to its calling, a calling of trusting in God alone, of worshiping him alone and not the things of man. Instead, he sees a city that is characterized more by going its own way than repenting and moving closer into fellowship with God and neighbor. And so their rejection of Jesus, of God's promised solution for peace, of covenantal blessing, has brought inevitable judgment upon them because for God to not allow the full curses of the broken covenant to fall upon the responsible party, Israel in this case, would be to ultimately go back on his own word. And that is something that God cannot do. So Jesus weeps at what he sees. That is his response at this point. Earlier in Luke 13, Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. It's back in chapter 13, and this is the second judgment that Jesus pours upon Israel as he gazes and looks over the city as he approaches it. To be clear, the weeping, though, of Jesus in this text is not for believers It is for unbelievers. It is for those who are lost. It is for those who have rejected Jesus, the one who makes for peace. This is why Jesus weeps. Now, this is sort of a wide angle lens as Jesus views the city. Let us then zoom in and go in and see what's at the heart of this as Jesus goes to the temple. And this gets to the second point, why Jesus is angry. Jesus is angry because the place where people could come for prayer, where they could come to meet with God, it has become something else, to put it mildly. The main thing, a place of fellowship and knowing God is no longer the main thing. Luke takes us from a panoramic view of the city to the heart of the city, the temple. Now, for the week of Passover, we, we have to get a picture of what normally would happen to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would swell to about three or four times its original size. For those traveling long distances, it wouldn't make sense to bring your animals of sacrifice with you. It'd be too costly, too challenging. Uh, And so what was a normal practice is that you would go to the temple and you would buy your animals of sacrifice there. 
Josephus in his history records that on one Passover, 255,000 lamb were sold during the week of Passover. Bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. Temple courts were also a place to exchange currency for the temple tax. And so there's this huge center of commerce going on here that in some senses is not bad. It kind of has to happen. But it, it has replaced the main thing, essentially. All right? So you had these tables set up where people would be exchanging currency or they would be selling animals. In short, it was the business center of Jerusalem or of, of, of the city. You kind of have to think about if you've ever been to the uh, Fort Worth Stock and Rodeo Show. Right? If you took all those animals and maybe crammed them into the New York Stock Exchange on a normal trading day, this is just the chaos and how overgrown and loud and messy and um, blown out of proportion things had become. As it happens, the place most commonly where livestock were sold where Jesus comes in and turns over the tables in our text this morning was the only place where Gentiles could come in and find peace to meditate and pray. It's known as the outer court. It wasn't the only place, but it definitely has become the place where most of this buying and selling has taken place. And in, and in essence, what's happened is, is, is instead of this being a place, vision, the stockyards, and the New York Stock Exchange again, being a place where you can come and quietly reflect and be with the Lord, it is now a place of chaos. In Mark's account, we read Jesus saying that my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. One commentary puts it this way, that Gentiles in particular were hindered by the temple commerce in the outer court. The goal of Jesus' action is to restore the temple temporarily to its function, namely to serve as a house of prayer for all the nations. And so what we begin to see is it's not this business currency center selling of animals that Jesus is so much angry about in and of itself. This was sort of a normal practice, as I mentioned. What he is angry at is what this normal practice has become and ultimately what it's preventing others from doing. First, what the practice of buying and selling has has become. In short, it's become the ultimate thing, which is another way to describe idolatry. These things have become more important to the religious leaders of the day than creating space for people to be with God. When we take something good in this world, like business or commerce or sports or food or whatever it might be, and we make it the thing, the ultimate thing, the thing that nobody gets to speak into, the thing that nobody gets to, uh, you know, to take from us, it is clear then that that thing has become the number one thing. Right? We all have these things. There are preciouses. And the Bible calls this idolatry. The temple, this unique place where people could come for prayer and actually meet with God through sacrifice of animals, has become less important than buying and selling more animals. The main thing is no longer the main thing. But the spiritual leaders of the day, the chief priests and scribes, have done nothing to stop this. In fact, they have allowed it to grow at the expense of keeping Gentiles out of the temple itself. And this is the second thing, what it's preventing others from doing. It is the spiritual leaders keeping or preventing people from being with God, being with God. I thought about it this way. It would be like Darwin or myself literally putting up a sign out front that says anybody from Alabama, welcome. 
And then as you came into the church, right, the whole place was flooded with Alabama paraphernalia, right, jerseys to buy, stuff you need, right, autographs, uh, so much so that you couldn't even come in here and find a seat. There was just so much you know, viewings of old, past, won national championships, whatever it might be. Um, and how this would prevent not just you from having a place of worship, but it would certainly prevent the nations from coming in and having and feeling welcome at, at the least. And this is why Jesus is angry. One of the reasons, at least. Well, Jesus, what does Jesus want his temple to be? Might be a question you have. And he tells us he wants it to be a house of prayer. Which I find very interesting when you think about all the other things that he could have said here. You know, I want my house to be a house of sacrifice. Right? I want my house to be a house of worship. Didn't say that. I want my house to be a house of service. But what he's doing is he's quoting from Isaiah 56. Beginning in verse 6, which says this. And the foreigners, is Isaiah, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer For all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And when we read that, right, when we get inside Isaiah and we understand what Jesus means when he says, My house will become a house of prayer, we begin to see what he is so angry about. That the main thing has not become, that the main thing is no longer the main thing. When we read Isaiah, this seems tailor-made for Luke and his gospel. So what does Jesus want his temple to be? For Luke, a place where all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike, foreigners and outcasts of Israel, where they can come and know God and spend time with him and be in his presence. In other words, like I said, where they can be in a relationship with him, where the main thing can be the main thing. He's not looking for robots or people who know about God. He's looking for people who want him. And by the time we get to verse 48 of our text, we see those people there hanging on every word, as the text says. But we get to ask ourselves the same question this morning, a familiar question in Luke. Do I really want God? And this dovetails into our question, what would compel me to follow him? Do I really want God? Do I want to know him? Do I want to be in a relationship with him? Or do I just want the things that God can give me? Right, do I just want heaven and all of its mansions and roads of gold? Or do I not care about any of that stuff as long as wherever heaven is, is where I'm in the presence of God himself? This is that question. Do I want others to want and to receive that too? Do I want the main thing to be the main thing here? And how do I know? And I think one litmus test this text gives us this morning is does Jesus get to come into your life, into the places that are most personal to you and meaningful to you and completely rearrange the furniture as it were? 
to even throw things out as he's doing in this temple scene. Look at where Jesus is in this text. He's at the temple, which is the heart of Jerusalem. And he is at ground zero here, turning over the tables and turning it upside down. This is where people made their living. This is where people bought and sold so they could provide for themselves and family. This is where commerce and free enterprise made things happen. All good things, by the way. All great things. And Jesus comes right into the middle of that and he turns it all upside down. And by the time he's done, there's a group hanging on every word, but there's also a group plotting to kill him. And I don't know about you this morning, but that scares me a little bit. But what could be better for our souls this morning, for our own hearts, than to ask the question, what good things that I love am I willing to allow Jesus to take away or turn upside down so that my relationship with him might actually flourish? So that I wouldn't just know about God and do the things that I think God wants me to do, but that I would actually know him intimately. An obvious one that we always have to keep in front of us are our plans. What if God doesn't want to give me X? Fill in the blank. What if he doesn't want to give me that particular job that I got rejected from? What if he doesn't want to give me a spouse or children or those wonderful summer vacations that I've always dreamed of? I'm two years away from being 40 and those uh, close to me or who have gone beyond that, that number, um, they're all having these questions uh, where, um, you know, the midlife crisis is what we call it. Uh, it's a real thing, by the way. And they're all asking these questions as they look at their life and they feel trapped in their jobs. And they realize that, that half of my life is over, in one sense. Is this it? Is this, all, is this all my life has amounted to? Is this all I have to show for it? Is this it? Um, and as, they, as, we, as we think about these things, um, did we ever think that Whatever it was that we thought we would have at this point, whatever it was that we thought would make our lives meaningful, have we ever come to the point where we thought that those plans, it wasn't God giving, not giving those to us because he was ignoring us, right? But have we ever considered that he wasn't giving us those things because he was sparing us? And that, that may be something that is easy to be said, and it might almost sound cliché. But Jesus' anger in this text gives us something, gives us a different story, a different way to look at this. He doesn't think it's cliche as he enters the temple and as he overturns what is most dear to others. What he shows here is that there is something much more important and better than getting what you've always wanted. And that's getting him. God is always in the business at any cost of gathering Yet others to him besides those already gathered, as Isaiah has said. Can God come into our heart's deepest longings and turn everything upside down so that our relationship with him could be stronger, could be better, could flourish? Is that something we want? There's a question that, that might be 
being asked this morning. And don't miss what's at stake here. It's always knowing God. My house shall be a house of prayer. As one pastor puts it, are you somebody who says their prayers or do you pray? Think about that for a second. Are you someone who says their prayers? Are you somebody who prays? Is prayer just a formality to you or is it where you experience the presence of God and intimacy with God as you cry out to him? Because the chances are the more we become a people who just say our prayers versus pray to God, the more we become unwilling to allow Jesus to disrupt what is most personal to us for the sake of being in closer relationship with him. Jesus is angry because the place where people could come for prayer and meet with God has become something else. The main thing is no longer the main thing. Would we long for him to come in and disrupt our lives if that were the case in order to make the main thing the main thing again? So we've seen why Jesus weeps. We've seen why he is angry Let us look at what Jesus is looking for then. What does he want? And I'm going to give you three things and then we're done here. The first thing that Jesus wants from you and he wants from me is he wants us to weep for those who reject him. He wants us to weep for those who reject him. What Jesus promises as he comes into our lives and overthrows what is most dear to us is to make that heart more like his own. That is, we begin to love what Jesus loves and Jesus as we have seen in Luke, loves lost things. And we must also, if we are going to follow him. In this way, we become people who weep with Jesus as those who reject him. We have a compassion for those of hard heart. And we bring them into our lives as Jesus did for us, longing for the day of their conversion. Do we love those who reject Jesus? Is the simple question. If you're a Christian here this morning, what space in your life are you giving over to fold in those who don't believe in Jesus? Not so, much, not so that they might become some project for you, but because you love them, which is what Jesus is demonstrating here in this text. It's because you love them so much that it might cause you to weep at the rejection of our Lord. Jesus is showing us that, we, that to weep for those in our lives who reject him is to love those in our lives who reject them. And what space in our lives are we setting aside in order to develop relationships with those around us who do not know the Lord? Soon we are going to have a seminar here at the church on the art of neighboring and hospitality. At the core of those two things is a literal interpretation of love your neighbor geographically speaking. We're going to be devoting time and training to help us do this effectively. And the first barrier to ministry like this is always, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. But if we are going to take on Jesus's heart for lost things, the first step is to make time for those we love, even though we don't know that we love them yet. And I hope you all want to be a part of that. Many of you have confided in me and I've heard you speak of this in painful ways of how you pray and long for loved ones to know the Lord. One of the hardest things this side of glory is to understand why those who are most dear to us, why those that we pray for, whether a spouse, a sibling or a close friend, doesn't come to know the Lord. And to those, I would say, especially as we look at this text, to keep praying, but keep weeping as well. 
keep loving the way your Savior does. In this way, you too are entering into the suffering of our Savior, the suffering that he endured for those who rejected him. We don't know the plans of God, and that is not our job. Our job is to know Jesus. Weeping for those who reject him is a great way to know your Savior. First, he wants us to weep with those who reject him. Second, to be angry with those who get in the way of having the lost come to Jesus. To be angry with those who get in the way of having the lost come to Jesus. This is a sermon in and of itself, but suffice it to say that the irony of this text is that those who are supposed to be in the business of knowing God and caring for God's people and caring for for those who God is gathering, as Isaiah said, the scribes and the chief priests, they are the ones creating the most barriers here. What if the same were true for the church today? What barriers are here that we might be unaware of? How would we even know? Which breeds another question. Is the church open to criticism? Are the pastor, is the pastoral staff open for criticism? Am I open for criticism? Not to the point where we break with orthodoxy. Don't hear me say that. But are we willing to examine ourselves and be examined often by those outside the temple gates, just as Jesus is in this, time, in this context? No church is perfect and you cannot be all things to all people. But, we are, but are we open to hearing how we might become more inviting to those outside these walls? Are we willing to have Jesus take our idols of tradition and throw them out for something new and something better? People ask me what I love about working at Fort Worth Prez, and I tell them Darwin is always open to trying new things. It's one of the things I tell them. Why? Because if it might bring a family or individuals to this church that otherwise wouldn't, it's worth it. It's worth it. May we always be that way. And may we become Christ followers who are so in tune to what is going on around us that any hindrance the church might cause would be something we care deeply about. Something that we care deeply about, even worth changing ourselves. What does Jesus want here? He wants us to be angry for those who get in the way of having the lost come to him. Lastly, Jesus is also looking for allegiance. He's looking for people to follow him. Or as verse 48 puts it, who want to hang on every word he says. And it's the question we've been asking this entire series. What would compel us to do that? What would compel us to follow him? And the answer this week is the same as the weeks before. He is going to lay his life down for those who reject him. He's going to lay his life down for you. As I said at the beginning, Jesus will die for those who reject him. But in the same way, also in doing this, he will clear a way for those who are far off to be with him. And what this means this morning is that your rejection of him actually doesn't stop him from loving you. It's probably the most powerful picture we see of Jesus yet. Before we see him on the cross, that your rejection of him doesn't keep him from loving you. At the same time, your sin, right? Your outsiderness, your imperfections and brokenness and tragedy, your inability to love others well to the point that you'll weep for them or even lay down your rights because Jesus is better. 
all those things that we fail to do doesn't keep you from being with him either. He dies for all of this. Jesus becomes what is ultimately rejected on the cross so that Paul can tell you and me that what makes for peace has finally come. Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go home and read the next 10 verses of that chapter. It's amazing, especially in tune with these two, these, this text in Luke. We have peace with God because of Jesus. He has reconciled us to him. This is what Jesus wants. First, he wants us to weep with those who reject him, to be angry with those who get in the way of those who would come to him. And he wants your allegiance. He wants you. And some of us might be hearing this and thinking, I just don't know. I'm not sure I could give up my life to follow Jesus at this point. I'm not sure that that is something that I could do. Well, I want to leave you with this picture, with, which for me, as I've been thinking about this, is a good summary of how it is that we begin to leave our lives to follow Jesus. I'm not sure if this is a historically true account. I'll preface it with that, but a pastor did say this story, so it has to be true, right? Um, But if it's not true for this individual, it's true for Jesus as we look at him. Uh, This pastor tells a story of Abraham Lincoln going to the slave market one day. There he made note of a young, beautiful African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest offer. He bid on her and he won as Abraham Lincoln. The story goes that he could see the anger in the young woman's eyes and could imagine what she was thinking. Another white man who will buy me, use me, and then discard me. And as Lincoln walked off with his quote-unquote property, he turned to the woman and he said, You're free. You're free. What does that mean, she replied. It means that you're free, Lincoln said. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say, she asked. Yes, you can say whatever it is you want to say. Does it mean that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, Lincoln responds. It means that you are free and can go wherever you want to go. Then said the young woman with tears welling up in her eyes. I think I'll go with you. I think I'll go with you. How much more for Jesus, right? who has bought us with his blood, who has reconciled us to himself. See, Jesus never wins our hearts by giving us what we want, friends. He wins us by giving us true life at his own expense, even those who would reject him. And when we see that, when we see him hanging there for us till it is finished, who can help us say, I think I'll go with you. May that be true for us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these pictures of your love for us. For those who reject you, who in many ways is all of us, but in your kindness and in your grace, you've had mercy on us, mercy we did not deserve. 
And you've given your precious blood so that we may be with you, so that we may be forever in your house of prayer. May we want that. May we want that. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.